0: Now, the podcast celebrating a variously compiled world of pop. In each episode, a variety of fabulous guests and I explore favourite compilation albums, as well as considering how these collections shaped pop culture and now fondly stand as time captures for our own musical and life milestones. I hope that you will enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the show through your favourite podcast provider and join in with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. Joining me today for the podcast is Daryl Easley. With over 40 years' experience in the music industry, Daryl is the perfect guest for us here at Back to Now. Having held the position of deputy editor at Record Collector magazine, Daryl regularly contributes to a wide variety of publications, including Mojo, Prog, and Uncut. And recently, he has provided insightful musings and sartorial style across Channel 5's greatest hits of pop series. As an author, Daryl's books explore his great loves, pop eccentrics, soul, funk and prog rock, and has included writing on an illustrious range of artists, including Chic, Supremes, Sparks and Peter Gabriel. As an A&R consultant, Daryl works with a variety of record companies working with artists and also compiling and annotating CDs and LPs. And as a DJ and event host, Daryl's work has taken him to an eclectic range of venues such as Abbey Road Studios, the British Library and Tate Modern. And if all this wasn't enough, he also broadcasts his own spectacular radio shows on sfob.co.uk and Street Sound Radio, and is, by his own admission, completely unafraid to dance. Daryl, welcome back to now. Wow, what can I say? What (laughs) Nice to be here, Ian. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Let's move straight to Channel 5. You've been gracing our TV screens recently on the greatest hits of series. So tell us a bit about that.
1: Well, I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, it came in via... There was a couple of programmes on the 70s talking about I Feel Love and talking about Le Freak." And because they were so successful, they, they went into the greatest hits of the 80s. And obviously, because I'm so gorgeous and easy on the eye, my words of wisdom come across. Uh, they thought, oh, let's have him in. But it, it was fascinating because lockdown has, has shown us many things, as you know, as you know from the podcast. People are far more open to talking to you on a screen. And all these things were filmed in isolation. You know, a camera would be sent to your house. For fans of the show, you can see my living room and my dining room. And, you know, how technology has evolved, that you can just talk down a Zoom. One of the reasons they liked me and I was on it so much is because I worked in record shops i sold all these records and that was the most beautiful thing that i've written about them and i love them and i can eulogize on them and play them out and all that but also i remember them selling and i can see them as spines of 12 inches or spines of the dreaded cd single the least loved format ever (laughs) although single comes close so you know i i feel as passionate sometimes even though i might not like it the the the, about dupe yeah dupe discuss uh, as some of the cool ones and of course you where, where you have some of the sort of heavyweight cats on there going oh my dear i would never talk about dupe i think well great you know dupe it's all part of a piece and that's what pop is and you know it doesn't stop me loving the fall or luther Vandross or you know whatever i but i can still like dupe yeah it's well, it's being a generalist isn't it darrell <laughs> <laughs> well i was called a generalist once by dear jack kane a record collector and and I suppose it is, and it's that fact that, you know, it's the cliche of all cliches, but sometimes, you know, you want a a Milky Way, and other times you want to have, you know, the finest chocolate making you a
0: lint bunny, you know, and and you can have both. I think what's been interesting about the Channel 5 shows, though, is that it's based on the official chart company figures, which makes it very interesting because it does give us a real snapshot of what people were buying and actually see how, well, slap bang in the middle of Britpop, Robson and Jerome were the biggest sellers within the UK charts.
1: Absolutely. And I I think this whole thing about how we respond as sort of cultural critics and and, and sort of music, not music snobs, aficionados, and what actually people want, people like, and people love, uh, you know, are often two different things. You know, to me, why aren't Earl is number one of all time but there are 39 people that like El Brewers 38 of them
0: work in the music industry you know it's that sort of thing but everyone loves Robson and Jerome It, it does open that opportunity to look at pop as that rich tapestry because that that's what it is and I think in this country in particular we've got a real heritage in creating a very very broad church of likes and dislikes
1: oh absolutely and I think that whole thing when people say pop music's not as good as it used to be you know Pops have always been borderline crap. I mean, you know, every year has had its, there's no one quite like grandma equivalent and some are better than others, but it's always there because popular taste will always throw up those sort of Brian and Michaels of this world. And that's why sometimes when I when I write and when I think, I you know, I do actually get obsessed about what really happened. You know, we weren't all listening to The Velvet Underground. I'm sorry. I mean, I know we'd like to think we were, we weren't. We didn't all have what's going on. We you know we didn't actually know really in the main about what's going on until NME said this is the best album ever. And we were, oh my god, right, we were going by it. And, you know, now is like the channel five thing because it's like, well, this is what was in the chart at that moment.
0: And it's something that you know we come back to on the episodes. Quite readily is the fact that they are time capsules They are snapshots of what happened That's what makes us who we are And it's, you know, it triggers those points in our lives Which we're going to come to on your chosen album (laughs) Let's talk a bit about growing up How how did music come into your life? What was the kind of first influences? Well, you know, I was very
1: lucky to grow up in a musical household In the sense that my mother had worked in a record shop And a sort of electrical shop Which had its little record department and things like that And, you know, she was quite with it. Even sort of later, she would say to me, you know, groups that I liked and I would talk about. Sometimes she'd say to me, sort of out of the blue, oh, what are talking heads doing now? You know, like in 1993, you should say that. So there was a sort of intelligence about it. But, you know, it was the classic growing up where pop was around and they loved it, but the record collection was the classic James Last Hammer, of the Go-Go Three John Hanson, The Desert Song, a bit of Richard Tolber. It was a thing my father loved, sort of opera singers. But again, I sort of saw that phenomenon of actually having a record collection that was never played mm. or only sort of played occasionally. It was a bit like a sort of, as much an objet d'art as the sort of brass horse or yeah. something like that they had. But it was all like, you know, Max Bygrave's Mum was bought Barbara Streisand's Greatest Hits, Volume 2, the one with the silhouette of her hair oh, yeah, Christmas, yeah. and thought it was a bit sort of far out. But then, bizarrely, my father, there's a record called Body Music by Chris Rainbow, and he made a video album in the early 80s. And I think it was because, you know, my mum worked at Smith's, and I worked at Smith's as well, but my mum worked at Smith's, and I think they'd had an overstock of it. And my dad bought this, got this 12-inch of Body Music. And it's the most bizarre sort of AOR. I suppose it's Yacht Rock, really. I can still see my dad now sort of grooving around the living room to it. But I think what overarched everything, my dad was a policeman and he um, was one of the team that got the Beatles into South End Odeon in 1963. So the folklore of the Beatles was absolutely huge. And I had an elder brother and he had Abbey Road and I've still got his copy of it over there, which I borrowed and never gave back. You know, sometimes I I think about this and I think, look, I just sound like some sort of, is this a received memory? Have I made this up? My mother really liked two records. One was Rag Mama Rag by the band. And I mean, she was hardly, you know, she didn't have music from Big Pink in the collection, let's say that way, but she loved that single. And I loved it too, because it's like, you know, you sort of have a little sway to it. And we saw John Lennon do an instant karma on top of the pot. I, mean, I was four, but I just remember him at the upright piano with Yoko Knitting. And a lot of as a kid, you sort of think, who's oh, a, a woman knitting? What does that mean? And then Let It Be came out, the single. And I just, I became obsessed by it. And the reason I became obsessed was I saw it on top of the pots. So we bought it, and the B side to as a record called You Know My Name, Look Up The Number. And I, I couldn't get over it. Because it was that thing, you know, when you're sort of four, was this, this comedy record, you know, which yeah. it fundamentally is. And out of context with this group who were also making these, you know, big ballads. And and it was my pie piece. I would sort of do dances to You Know My Name, Look Up The Number. And I knew it backwards. And I can still do the impression, you know, of all the different voices in it. Yeah, And again, then you had the Beatles films on at Christmas And I became, it sounds a bit like, you know, when the Ruttles Leggy Man and they became obsessed with the trousers. I became obsessed with their hair. You know, I was like watching Hard Day's Night in black and white. And then you'd see Let It Be or Yellow Submarine. And then you'd see a picture of Sergeant Pepper. and You're thinking, these are all the same people. Yeah. How can that be? The hair had
0: as much effect on me as the music. I've often said to people Two things that That I can remember That set me off To becoming a lifelong Beatles fan Was first of all The death of Lennon Because I can mm-hmm. You know that And everybody remembers that but, but I mean I was only eight When that happened You just knew This was the presence Of somebody really important And some, yeah, yeah, yeah. there was a big Big passing And the second one Is Stars on 45 <laughs> That was probably the gateway to me for the rest of me discovering the Beatles.
1: I always think the, the greatest thing was putting No Reply at the start. Yeah. If you were there at the time, uh, you know, it was as big as all the others. But by the time that came out, No Reply had sort of sunk to the bottom. And it was like, OK, there's another Beatles song to listen to. And, and I completely agree. And, and I, I remember when all the singles came out, when they were reissued in, in seventy six. more or less I saved up and bought them all when I could. But I remember buying Magical Mystery Tour on cassette with that horrible. I mean, it was the It was that, the brown,
0: that kind of brown bit yeah, along the top. That <laughs> bit at the top.
1: And take it in and show him my dad. I used to, you know, go in and see my dad at work. And he had one of his colleagues in the office. And he looked at, he said, what have you bought there? And I said, Oh, it's it's the Beatles. And this was about 75. And he went, Beatles? You might as well buy the Joe Loss Orchestra. <laughs> And it, they were sort of so far out. And then it was that sort of four years of the when the singles came out again and then rock and roll music and love songs and things like that started to build them back. And then sadly, you know, he was shot and then it became sort of the Beatles TM and and we live in the Beatles world, which is absolutely fine by me. And and when I worked at record collector, there's a great geezer called Andy Neal who's, who's written books on The Who and, you know, and we shared an office for, for six months, which was very amusing. It was a bit like a sitcom. But his theory on the Beatles was um, the Beatles overrated by those who love them and underrated by people who don't. And I yeah. think, actually yeah, that's,
0: that, that kind of sums it up, really, doesn't
1: it? I mean, my mum started work in Smiths in about 1972. So, and Staff Discount was a, a heady brew that used to draw me in. But also we had relatives in Swansea. My mum was from Swansea. And the great thing was there was a shop there called Derek's Records, which is still unbelievably there. I can still remember buying 20th Century Boy by T-Rex, putting it on the parcel shelf of the car, and then we'd always stop at the Seven Bridge Services for a sort of cup of tea on the way home. And, of course, it had warped. I can still feel the tears. This is like marvellous therapy. There used to be a little record shop at the Seven Bridge Services at the front which I remember several years later was the first time I ever saw Rattus and the Vegicus by The Stranglers. And I I went in there I said, do you have this record? Oh, no, we've sold out. And I think I I cried all the way home to uh, to South End, which was still about another four hours at that point. And then there was these marvellous stores, Guy Norris, you know, the the, the sort of local Mm. entrepreneur who had his name above the the store. Later, there was a shop called Record World, and there was this guy called Trevor Stoneman who ran it. And he was the spitting image of Graham Goldman from 10CC. And he was brilliant because I was like a fat kid who used to get bullied and I was able to sort of, it was records and facts, I realised were the two things that would get me out of having the shit kicked out of me. And what I then did was sort of make tapes for people and that stopped them beating me up. But, you know, I I think of this Graham Stoneman, uh, the Trevor Stoneman guy, I still call him Graham, and I was like 12, 11, 12, and he was sort of saying, "Oh, you know, try John Martin. Try yeah, this yeah. Led Zeppelin well, You know, that sort of thing, in that way of the record shop owner or the staff as actually being almost like a sort of care workers. Yeah. They were placing the right thing to the right person. And it was far more than just selling people something. And the funny thing is I met him years later, you know, quite recently that Brian Wilson came and played at the Cliffs Pavilion, which is our venue. And I saw him I went, Graham, it's so nice to see you. And he went, no, oh, I'm, I'm Trevor. And I said, just sorry, I know that. I know that even now he still looks like Graham Gorman, but you know, and I think that thing we all need, you know, the older friend, my old, my rock, my brother, Rod, who had Abbey road, a friend called Simon Ford. Who was my dad's friends who first played me pink Floyd, you know, the, all those little steps and stages, my best mate, Phil, who introduced me to the fall and the doors and talking heads. Mm. Graham, my other best mate who, you know, his brother like cream, but you still had the charts. And that was the great thing. And we, you could listen to both. I always had a thing, and I still do, you know, for names. I think, you know, if you've gone so far to get an interesting name, you must be sort of quite interesting yeah. because there's a thought process here. You're not just the Dazzlers or, or, or something. This example, that was Van de Graaff Generator, or when mm-hmm. they were just Van de Graaff. And I was going on a weekend away to Blackpool, which when you live in South End, Blackpool, before the motorways were completed, was a bloody long way. I just remember. I just thought, will I ever get out of this car? I'd never experienced anything quite like it. But we got there, and in the car, I was reading the enemy that came out that week, and there was a record by Vandagriff January or Vandagriff by then called The Quiet Zone, The Pleasure Dome. And I just thought, that's such a great title. Yeah. I, that what is that? And I, I had a little bit of money. And I can't remember. I'd seen my auntie and she'd give me you know three quid or whatever it was, I, a quid probably. But I had enough to buy an LP. So I went into The Virgin in, in in Blackpool when we were there, and there it was, and it had this cover with a world on it, and an acrobat, and I thought, oh, oh, oh. So I bought it, you know, and never heard a, a note by it. And that brilliant way that when you just had one record, you know, I think lots of your guests are talked about it, you know, you would play it because yeah. you'd made that decision and you'd have to sort of train yourself to like it it was just amazing i still can't get over it It just blew my mind and the fact it sounded like a punk record i mean it's such a an an odd record anyway but there's no you know it's not prog in the sense of 20 minute solos or anything like that it's it's a very you know people would now call it post-punk and and that and i think that kept me and still now it's like when i first saw the name dry cleaning earlier this year i thought i want to hear them i don't know if i'm going to like them but i want to hit wet leg there's another one now Sing, you know english teacher You know, these great names and i always yeah. have this theory that two word bands you know if i like them they're never going to be famous but you know beta band old brutus regular Friars, yeah uh, fat truckers brilliant you know all <laughs> of them are great because the high concept two word bands as i call them yeah. they're there and i think that thing of a name Brings you back And I suppose Spotify Can make it easier
0: But I, I think that thing Of that adventure, sense of adventure We had when we were younger It was this idea of, of discovery You yeah. go into a record shop And you may not get this 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 album That you'd scribbled down On a bit of paper But you know You would eventually find it somewhere And it was then yours At the risk of sounding Like a complete Luddite <laughs> I just I can't see how so You know how, how streaming can do that
1: I think the thing with streaming because obviously I think about this a lot and I talk about it a lot, is is what you have is this incredible breadth, you know, in a, in a way far greater than we ever had. Yeah. But no depth. You know, my daughter was 16 and we were having tea the other night or whatever and Spotify threw up The Chain by Fleetwood Mac. Mm. And she knew every single word of it. And my wife was like open mouthed. It's like, how, Laura, how do you know this? And it's like, well, it's... Spotify, you know, it's out there. It's just all there. The... Yeah. Yeah. And, and I find it fascinating because, you know, she's never bought a record. You know, it's all the classic things you hear parents say, you know, but music is there. Yeah. And I sometimes say to say,
0: oh, Jim, do you want to borrow this? Do you want to? No. No. The chain is just a small bit of the cultural jigsaw for young people. Of course it is. You know, whereas to you and I, it's track one, side two, rumours. And, and, you know, in a way, I love them. At least you're hearing it yeah you
1: know at, at least it's still out there music is something you should never ever be precious about because that you know my view of music always is i like this yeah you have a listen yeah. you might you like it or hate it but at least hear it i think in a way obviously now was a classic early playlist you know yeah. that it was yeah. doing that uh i think that sort of egalitarian nature of it is like the best radio stations and like everyone says listening to the chart when we were kids that you would have something terrible next to something that was beautiful
0: your finger uh, hovering over the pause button and then you go yeah. now nah, I'm not bothered with that one <laughs> and that was but, that was the beauty of course it was and the funny thing is is the records I thought were horrible
1: the records I like now, and the records <laughs> that I really like you know as time passes I am so glad Joe Dolce kept Vienna off number one I mean I was so offended for years and now I think that's brilliant I love it
0: now 43 with the massive number ones from martin mccutcheon and backstreet boys over 40 of the biggest hits of the year with new radicals texas blur and madness
1: now 43 with fat boy slim and brian adams and number ones from
0: atb baz lerman boyzone and shanks and bigfoot Now 43, that's what I call music. So let's move on then to Now 43. We have climbed in a time machine and we have jumped forward from the 80s and we're now at the end of the millennium. It is July 1999 and... Now 43 has been released, reached number one in the compilation charts. We have to say that, obviously. Broken away. Completely broken away. Um, Big seller, four weeks at number one, three times platinum, and the first of six now mini discs. Oh, yes, of course. Only six, (laughs) which says something. Do you have them? I don't have any mini discs, no.
1: (laughs) It's funny, I do have...
0: I used to have the best of ELO on Minidisc when I had my Minidisc player, but I used to use my Minidisc player a lot more for recording on. I'd never actually bought them, but this the the first now on Minidisc, and and I would hope one of our listeners has it and is now I, showing a photograph of it. It's probably worth
1: you know twenty one pound fifteen. It's funny because I, I do own one, and that's why I was looking behind me because it had actually been behind me for a while. Uh, I bought Underworld's Buku Fish on mini disc. I've had this huge lockdown cull, um, and it's been brilliant. And my office here is alphabetized properly for the first time ever. And I found lots of great things like my Muppet Diary from 1981, where um, i just come back from Bournemouth 40 years ago and I listed the records I bought. And oh, excellent. It's so exciting, which I may share with you later. But in that, I sort of got rid of my CD um, Walkman and I got rid of my cassette yeah. Walkman because no matter how many people will try and tell you it's going to be trendy again, I mean I have got cassette players, but that's say. But I held on to my mini disc, the the player and everything because it still it still worked, yeah. and I just thought, no, I want to keep that. And I think that what it represents is the possibilities of that period, and which I think now forty three sums up perfectly. Yeah. There's a sort of Innocence and joy about a lot of it, yeah. and I, I would say twenty percent of it I would take with me always wherever I went. Yeah, forty percent I would in you know put up with, uh, and the rest is of its time. But you put it together and that's the beauty of now. It's what's next to the one that you love.
0: Yeah, it is a, an amazing snapshot of 1999, mm. of, that, of that summer period. It's taken me back as well, uh, mm. what, 20, 22 years, which is which is unfathomable to think of that, okay. um, you know, to go back that way. But to actually go back and revisit a new album that sat in my shelf probably unbothered for a good number of years. And it's actually brought back not just a lot of memories, but actually triggered a lot of musical rediscoveries. (laughs) Summer 1999, where were you in in life? What what was going on? Why
1: this has such resonance with me is in 1997, I left R-Price. I'd worked for R-Price. I I went there in 1984 when I was 18. And I basically worked there throughout my 20s and i'd worked and our price was was very very uh, you know you got promoted from within and if you were prepared to sort of almost sell your soul and work every hour that god gave you know you would get on very very sort of thatcher very very 80s and and early 90s and the, the fascinating thing was i've got in touch with a lot of our price people i'm still very good friends with with many of them but you know we were all kids you know we were running record shops you know i was a manager of a record shop at 19. Yeah, you know, I had the honour, and I always think of an honour as running our Price Romford Christmas nineteen eighty five. You know, five star were just breaking. You know, we had the match room with Steve Davis around and all that mm. over the road. So that was that era. And then I'd gone through that period, and I and I became an area manager for our Price, and it was almost like I went from twenty to fifty in one fell swoop. My life was sort of conferences and meetings and appraisals and store visits and clipboards and all of that virgin took over our price um which was brilliant some i met lovely people like mark wood for the first time we were very similar even then you know we've both been saturday boys and smiths and blah 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 mm-hmm. and all of that and the opportunity came to take redundancy because they were phasing out the role i had and i was asked to stay and do this and that and i just thought well i never went to university because i was going to go as a kid but I went to work in record shops because that's what I loved and I, that's what I've been doing since I was 13. So I took this incredible gamble. My wife had been to uni and I'd supported her when, when she went. We, You know, we got married when we were 21, so... And I took redundancy to At sort of 32, 33, I started to go down to being 18 again. And I, I grew down so sharply. And suddenly I just got this ridiculous sort of second childhood yeah. after being so sort of pent up. And so sort of, you know, suddenly I became my age, went to university. And I remember when I went, someone said to me, oh, um, you know, what would you like, you know, why, why why do you want to go? I said, look, the main thing is I would just love to be that person that sits in the corner. And someone says to me, what's the best Clash album? And I could do that. And like within about a week that had happened. So I ran the student radio station and, and it was like, I just brought everything that I did in the shops that was sort of And it was lovely, and, and it's almost like this album came at that peak of it. I went in '97, so this was breaking up into the second year, into the third year. You know, I was hearing records like I hadn't heard before. My, you know, my my knowledge and love of David Bowie's Earthling or Mezzanine by Massive Attack, yeah, Wuku Fish by by Underworld. You know, if I'd been working at our price still, there would have been something I'd had in my car, driven, listened to, you yeah. know, moved on. But here I went back to being a kid and it was amazing. I would sit down with headphones
0: and listen to these records. Yeah. So this record to me is the sort of summit of my growing down, really. In some ways, it's almost one of these definitive nows in that it is a real journey (laughs) across a lot. But again, this is very much, I've gone back and looked through the chart books, you know, this was the hits of that period.
1: Absolutely. It's an album of um, brilliant, brilliant breakthroughs. You know, it's an album where, you, you know, it's, it, you can feel the weather vane of pop moving. Yeah. And we're, we're looking towards the next phase. We're looking at the sort of the commercialization of the last phase. But you're also looking at these, you know, strange little comebacks that are in there. Yeah. I have to say, I entirely
0: forgotten Culture Club, Your Kisses of Charity. Well, the two that actually jumped together was, was that and Madness, Love Struck. Love Struck, yeah. Which actually was a song that at the time I dismissed completely and it has been an earworm all mm. the week because it's actually classic madness yeah. in all its sense. And similarly, Culture Club.
1: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think... I mean, Love Struck, I remember at the time, feeling so happy Madness were back. Yeah, because yeah. they'd sort of been trading on that the nostalgia angle since the first Madstock. Uh, and then that was great. And I, if I remember rightly, the video, where they were on a top of a London bus, and yeah, yeah. Suggs was doing all his, you know, all his Suggs-like moves. <laughs> and I thought, isn't this lovely? And, 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 you know, I was 32, 33, and my friends were sort of... 1920 and it was like the first time they were properly hearing Madness
0: yeah and they were loving it because they they were just hearing it as they were hearing another pop song. to me it stands up alongside the sun and the rain and yep. you know Michael K it's that same kind of sound it's just fabulous and I think as well you know, from, you know from a now point of view you've got Culture Club you've got Madness two of the first now album artists yep. still making great records here you know whatever 20 years later yeah yeah absolutely let's go back to the beginning of the cd because cd one there's no sides listeners it's just two compact discs Uh, although i think yeah you could have got it on cassette they would have split up on cassette i suppose yeah but we'll just we'll just stick to the cd version so there's a really really big pop beginning (laughs) to this to this compact disc
1: i have to say i thoroughly enjoyed hearing perfect moment by martin mccutcheon again yeah. Because it was everywhere, and it, it symbolises the optimism of that moment, a perfect moment, if you will. You know, I always remember the covers of all the papers on the first day of this century, which had sort of like this raging sense of optimism. Mm. It was like, this is your world, you know, we can do what we want with this now. And at that point, reality shows hadn't kicked in. You know, Big Brother was still a year away. Mm. Pop or X Factor was still coming And here you had someone, I was thinking of the Kit Kat advert, you know, you can't sing, you can't play, you'll go far sort of thing. Martine McCutcheon, you know, people were tutting. What's he doing having a hit single and all of that? And you listen to it, and it it was that time where someone like Martine McCutcheon could star in one of the most popular films, you know, British films of all time, and go on the West End stage and all of that. The talent may not have been as great as people thought it was, but it was there. And I think the fact, you know,
0: to get the track one, the throne position, yeah, and in some ways, though, that is a very unique British thing. I mean, if you go back through the seventies, eighties, we like those all-encompassing stars. You know, you take somebody like Cilla Black. Yeah. You know, let's say for example, was not maybe the greatest singer of all time, but she is a a British darling, um, light entertainment, yeah. that kind of feature. You know, you take the likes of Lulu um, and Martin McCutcheon fits that. You know, she was she was uh, you know she just came out of EastEnders. Um, oh, and yeah. you know, you see Notting Hill? She's great in Notting Hill. She's absolutely yeah. uh, no, it's not Notting Hill. No, it's uh, not. It's not. It's, actually, I'll do that again. She's great in Love Actually, <laughs> um, because it's you know, um, she's she, she's one of those stars. And yeah, I mean, to get the throne position, but it was it was a big hit. What was it, number two in the charts? Not for number one. It was number one. Number one. Number one, one, yeah. number one for two weeks. So you know, she it's our. But yeah, that that optimism, that end of the century thing oh. is prevalent right across this album.
1: I think that sort of, you know, candy Siècle, as they always kept <laughs> saying at that time. But, you know, it came in the moment Blair was elected. I mean, that, that mm. feeling before it all got sullied by Iraq and all of that. Mm. You know, I remember sitting there, what was I? Thirty-one. You know, all I'd ever known was Thatcher. I could remember Callaghan vaguely, and that night after, I mean, we all stayed up and watched it. We had a party, all of that, and the night after, just laughing, laughing. You know, we weren't even drunk or stoned or anything like that. We were just sat and laughed because it just felt like this is our future now. Everything seemed peaceful, and we were optimistic. There, there was that feeling that right things are going to change now for the better, and the daftness of pop amplified that. And, and and we all just felt, okay, let's go back to dancing. And I think Big Beat is, is one of the great encapsulations of that. It's
0: just yeah. like, oh, let's just go and be daft on the dance floor. That's the thing about this album because whether it's indie in the commas or it's dance in a serious way or it's pop, they all actually have that carefree element to it and this. Yeah. Well, I
1: always I, I think this period, I mean, obviously Britney um, mm. had happened. To me, this is a start of how pop sounds now. Um, yeah. A lot of this
0: record now sounds like what we hear when we're listening to the radio. There's, there's a springboard element to this album, mm. which you can almost hear the beginning of the 21st century pop landscape coming. Yeah. And there's two people on this album, two, you know, two behind the scenes people on this album who are going to majorly influence where things go next. And it's Max Martin and it's Greg Alexander. So there, you know, you're looking at the Backstreet Boys on CD1 and the New Radicals, you know, what is it? The greatest one-hit wonder of all time, they say, which is actually selling Greg Alexander kind of short, you know. But in those two tracks, you've, you know, quite two distinctive tracks as well, you can hear the beginnings of what is going to really influence the charts for the next decade. Absolutely.
1: Uh, You know, I couldn't agree more. I also think you add in... ATBs, 9pm till I come. Mm. Then Shanks and Bigfoot and Fats and Small, the sort of speed garage solicitors, as I like to call them. (laughs) Um, All of that sound is still around us. Uh, And I think you're right. New radicals. I mean, I think when I talk about university, I think that record probably was the one. When I look back at three years Mm. uh, of, of university, I used to make pop lists of my, my albums and singles of the year and yeah 1999 was my final year of, of ever doing it yeah because then i went out into the world again and then i really did grow up and <laughs> what is fascinating is from this now the only track of my top 20 was um you get what you give yeah number 11
0: number, there was 10 better songs that 10 year.
1: better songs oh i think you'll agree that x factor by lauren hill um, yeah, yeah, at Planet Left Field, Honey to the Bee, Billy. Oh, that's great. I praise you, Finnish Symphony by Hybrid. Do you ever hear that? Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's an interesting
0: left fielder, yeah. but like, yeah, we'll take that.
1: Lady Fingers, Luscious Jackson. Yeah, I love my man Bent. Do you remember Bent? Oh, yeah, oh, that's a great God. track. I was obsessed with Bent I, when I was sorting out my records during lockdown. I think I've got about 13 12 inches by Bent, and I don't know what uh, any of them sound like.
0: That's, that, got... that's a song you do not hear anymore, as well. It's brilliant, oh, it
1: great Nanamaskuri sample. But yeah, New Radicals made it, it into my my personal uh charts that year. But it, it was just it was astonishing because you had this record that was sort of euphoric and sarcastic at the same time, yeah. And I also think that the, the partner record I always think about when you get what you give is also on here, uh, which is um Secret Smile, by yes. Semi-Song. But I think this, that that was another record. I, I you know I don't know any other record by Semisonic, but that had that sort of I don't know Eric Carmen all by myself sort of feel about it. It just sort of dropped in, and yeah. it's perfect. And it's one of those records that people think they know the words to. You can see him trying to mime it when it's on, yeah. and you only know the chorus. Yeah. No one knows the rest of it. But it's got that sort of depth that I think you get only get uh, you get what you give. Also has.
0: right so let, let's see where do you want to go next um, um, do you know what actually we mentioned the, that run there of atb and fact, and small basement jacks as well oh. um i mean this this was kind of peak point for the kind of ibiza dance sound Absolutely. um you know and there are three in inverted commas complete bangers really I mean it was
1: interesting because the you know when we were allowed back in pubs whenever that was we we, we went and met some friends and there was one of these great jukeboxes now where you can basically find any record in the world on there yeah. and for some reason and I don't know what it was but I put on Red Alert by Basement Jacks no record to me grabs that sort of euphoric moment but pure personal euphoria you you know euphoria you can't miss with basement jacks and this was at their absolute high period with the shows with the dance with feathers, and all of that stuff and it was like what is this because it's not what the chemicals are doing or what underworld are doing and it's not what the speed
0: garage boys are doing it's they created this own universe did you ever get a chance to see it i saw them live um no was it glastonbury Um, but it's just such an all-encompassing live experience
1: incredible it's like one of those things where people sort of say yeah great but you know you should have seen him live but this was absolutely right I mean it was just that way of bringing it all together but you still get you know their, their singles collection yeah it's just such a great pop record it's just you know I call all of this pop because it embraces
0: that zing and zest and I think this is an incredibly zesty entry into the Now series. A couple of years ago, prior to lockdown, I went to see a band called um, Confidence Man. Oh um, yeah, not oh, yet. Yeah. Uh, just, un- and you know, it was the first concert i have been to for quite a while and it was in quite a small venue in Glasgow. And I came out with that same kind of breathless excitement oh, yeah. and joy. This is a party, come and join us. No, this-
1: absolutely, no. I saw them twice um, that year and I couldn't believe it. You know, it was that joy and that sort of, the beautiful thing of the understanding of yeah. we are putting a show on for you yeah you know we are entering a, you know we are performing characters I mean it was almost like watching a, a you know a really good play yeah. or a film Basement Jack sort of took that very far at that point but no you're absolutely right that confidence
0: man that sort of and Basement Jacks did that they always left you thinking right I need more of that right away
1: yeah and, and I think that was the best of all my sort of two word high concept bands I mentioned earlier yeah, you get that with old Brutus. If you ever saw old Brutus live, it was just like this onslaught of everything just being thrown at you. And 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 I think that sort of sense of theatre, I love yeah. that. In, in, in pop And I think that's What you see You know That, that, that goes through Into Fatboy Slim You know On this album And it goes through To the chemicals mm. In that sense They really love What they're doing They're good at What they're doing They are enjoying What they're doing And they want you To enjoy it Fatboy Slim definitely You know
0: yeah. the, I mean, that, the whole thing Of the hands in the air DJ In this country Well let's take Those two songs together Actually because They go mm. well together Because they have That kind of millennial Feel to them as well Two artists who were really hitting their stride as far yeah. as, you know, things were going. But there's that kind of millennial feel, particularly right here, right now. And I'm sure when I actually came to the 31st of December, and I think the Chemical Brothers and Hey Boy, Hey Girl hit that as well.
1: I mean, I think both of those records, you play them now and they still sound yeah. contemporary. I mean, Hey Boy, Hey Girl, especially. I'm, I'm sort of like, we do a night, uh, I'm part of, there's four of us, we do a night called Middle Age Spread. Yeah. up the go for those unafraid to dance. We always try and vary it, but there's certain records that sort of almost if we don't play during the evening, you know, people will berate us for not playing them. And Hey Boy, Hey Girl, we sort of think, well, are we going to play it? Shall we leave it this time? And there is something about it, even now. And I remember doing a, playing a festival somewhere in, in a place called Chelmsford in Essex. And we were booked in a cabaret tent. So we had to do a set and everyone was going mad. And, and then on came some sort of You know, is that golden era burlesque. So you had some woman setting fire to a nipple tassels or something uh, with a man playing the zither. And then they went and you had to start again. And I remember this geezer coming up to me going, you've lost them now. What are you going to do? I said, you just wait a moment. Put on Hey Girl, Hey Boy. And there's that moment, that moment about two and a half minutes in where the beat really goes, where it drops. (laughs) And the whole place went, and he was still standing there. I said, "All right." <laughs> it's that great thing that I think what the chemicals did and what Fatboy Slim did was empower normal people to lose their. Can I say shit on here? Yeah, you can, because um, <laughs> you know, that's
0: what I was thinking.
1: <laughs> that's very good, but to, to properly lose their shit in a way yeah. that they wouldn't, it, it gave them permission to do it. And I think you can, you know, you can see it whether you're just playing it through your, you know, your sound dock or through your Lexa or whatever. Or you hear it in a club; it has that same effect, and I, and that's why I, I, you know, I
0: love what they do, and I, you know, I love I love where they're coming from. Listening back to them now, twenty two years later, those two tracks completely took me back to nineteen ninety nine because of that that spin of optimism that yeah. you know actually anything is possible, and we don't know what the twenty first century is going to be like, but do you know what, we have the capacity and the confidence to do it. I mean, again,
1: you know, there's never been a great past. We've always had our issues to deal with. But you look at that time and you think, well, you know, we were worried about the Millennium Bug. You know, and that was sort of it.
0: Ladies and gentlemen of the class of 99, wear sunscreen. Going along with that, I'm going to mm. jump back to the beginning of Compact Us 2 and there's this yep. Baz Luhrmann track, which, <laughs> to be honest, we could do a podcast all on its own about, which sure. has just got such a story. I was actually really surprised. The person I was then and the person I am now are two completely different people, and a lot's happened in those 20 years, and suddenly a track that I didn't really think much about in 1999 completely stopped me in my tracks. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think there there is, again, the power of... The the, the sort of
1: universe that record creates and the fact it's completely unlike anything else on the album that just resonates. And I think in the way that, whereas we've heard Hey Boy, Hey Girl a million times since then, you know, we've heard that about twice,
0: you know, it it resonates. It it wouldn't have been such an enormous hit if all those words didn't mean something. The coming together of Baz Luhrmann as a producer and, you know, taking this commencement speech... This really hit that millennial zeitgeist, I think. In some ways, I'm glad I don't hear this song very yes. often.
1: I, I agree. And I think there's, there's, what's the line there? It's like, keep, keep your love letters, throw away your bank statements or something yeah. like that. Uh, I mean, I think we've all been through in the past 18 months that sort of period where we have had time to actually look mm. at the things. You know, I'm, I'm next to a, a filing cabinet here in my office. And the amount of times I would just think, I must get around to clearing that at some point. I must get around to clearing it. Where every time some bill you didn't really want, you know, you'd <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the back of. So I finally got a chance to do it. And I, you think, why am I keeping bank statements from 1998? Where the thing that's had the most resonance is finding my, you know, my market diary from 1981. Yeah. I'm reading, you know, when I bought Mutant Disco in in Neymouth on a holiday with my mum and dad. And it's like, Wow, that's such a memory. Yeah, and 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 I think that's what that record did. Maybe you'll marry, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll do I have this, kids. Yeah, 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 you know. And it's like it doesn't matter, but just you know, at I least can't. entertain the idea.
0: Anyway, where 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 where? where, were? where I, can't, we? I don't know. I've, I've taken my glasses off. I've no idea where I'm. Hang on. Let's talk Spice. Mm. This was a, this was an interesting point for the Spice Girls where they were starting to splinter a bit. First of all, we've got Jerry Halliwell, the first big solo single. Mm. Look At Me, which actually stalled at number two behind The Boy Zone. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> and Anne Murray. Um, but uh, yeah, so so she's there, Look At Me. Given the dance music and given everything that, that's going on in pop, it's quite a throwback single for Jerry.
1: I mean, I think there always has been that sort of strong sense of nostalgia that sort of runs through the charts. And at this time, you could sort of hear that in things like um, uh, Wise Guys' Ooh La La, which was taking mm. the, the sample. And I think we'd, we'd all gone sampling crazy so I think people were used to hearing sort of records, sounds of the 50s and 60s and Bossa and things like that. Look at Me always made me think of uh, the kid in class who was so anxious to answer every question with her hand. And it was a bit too needy. as a re- And I know Jerry's character was basically being too needy. Yeah. But it, it was almost too much out there to, to do it. And I think she did hit a stride with the singles after that. There's an unusual thing about the British sort of taste they like knowing, but then too knowing, that falls away. Yeah. They like a little nod and a wink, but when it's so sort of arch and it's like, yes, Jerry, you were famous and you left the Spice Girls, we know that. Oh, here's a record to tell us about. Yeah, and it was a bit yeah. like
0: Sledgehammer to Crack a Nut or whatever. Yeah, I think you're right. Once you moved on from that and there was machico Latino and other tracks like that, she kind of moved That's into better pop singles after Absolutely. that. Um, yeah. And actually it's interesting because Emma Bunton hit a kind of 60s stride a couple of years yeah. later um, and did that and basically reinvented herself as Petula, Bl- uh, Petula Clark. <laughs>
1: or Petula Black as <laughs> or well. Petula as
0: well. Black or Silla <laughs> Clark, yeah.
1: But I think but it's interesting because, you know, Stop had that thing in it. There was always yeah. that sort of retro element. And I, and again, I think this was the first time you had a lot of that retro sort of coming through. Mm. I suppose it was the wake of Mike Flowers Pops and all of that sort of thing. And mm. the, the Easy Core revival or whatever it was. And you had, you had um, the whole Rat Pack thing was happening mm. at the same time. So I think there was that sense of, this is sophistication. This is how we do it. And, and, you know, if you want to be sophisticated, you know, the Burt Bacharach revival had sort of happened. Yeah. And, you know, I love Burt Bacharach as much as the next person, but it was a bit sort of, you know, it was just getting a bit much. I thought
0: they all form part of a piece. Unlike Mel B who went the and other yeah, way. And that's, whereas Mel B goes completely the other way, gets in Timberland, does this cover a word up. And it, really isn't very good is it no it's rubbish <laughs> I mean I, I have to say I've completely forgotten it you know, and that's why the show
1: is so great because you do get a chance to listen to it again because I, I may have lived the rest of my entire life without hearing Melby's version of Word Up again you know, you hear Gunn's version of Word Up more than you hear Mel B's version. Yeah. You know, the great thing of this era, which isn't fully represented, um, I'm I'm looking at the track listing, you know, it isn't really touched on it, but that marvellous Baroque productions of Timberland and Shakespeare and all those mm. characters of that time, Destiny's Child singles this period were like these works of art, sort of, yeah. you know, R&B minuets. I mean, it was just like
0: incredible...
1: So Mel B was was getting herself a piece of that, and she'd done the the record with with Missy and all of that.
0: But no, you're right. Actually, there's there's a missing chunk of that millennial R and B that isn't yeah. actually represented on this album. And I think to me, this this album's missing those no scrubs. By TLC, absolutely or even jennifer lopez things if you want my love yeah and it's and it's not really here actually and unfortunately melanie to give her a full name melanie g as it says on the sleeve um doesn't really kick it off no again it just it sounds like a novelty record when
1: you hear it on there yeah. i'm not saying it's hilda baker singing you're the one that i want <laughs> you, <laughs> you know you're almost in that territory it's like you know, "Word Up" is one of those invincible songs that you just think this is indestructible. No one can ruin this. Yep. Oh, and then oh, along like, comes Mel G. <laughs> oh, you've gone some way to do it. And I have a lot of time. I'm, yeah. It's not. I, no, I love the Spice Girls, and I love, and I know people. I really like have a problem with the Spice Girls, and I just think, no, no, they they were brilliant, and I love almost too much. I I loved them too
0: much, as name. Too right? much. Yeah, that yeah, could work.
1: <laughs> and, and and I think for me, again, being at university at that time jerry's departure which you know if i'd just been working in record shops it was a bit like oh robbie's left take that yeah whatever i actually saw the impact that made you know like 18 19 year old people generally it wasn't just girls but absolutely i would all use the phrase heartbroken you know i saw it close up you know and and because i knew about music i was a bit older people what do you think what do you think you know in this way like do I have an answer for them about, you know, why Jerry's left the
0: Spice Girls? So it, it, was, it was... But you must know. know, you work at I'm our price, surely. <laughs> You've done this, you know the whole story. That's but, right. I bought all the Walker's crisp bags and uh, pressed
1: <laughs> them in a, in a book, uh, which I did, yeah. obviously, and I still have not But, you know, I have a lot of time in Mel B, or Mel G as she was, but it didn't improve my life by hearing it again.
0: No. From a now point of view, the next couple of years, there was so much solo Spice... Absolutely. Uh, beyond beyond that. Let's jump across the CD2. There's <laughs> would you call it a rock section or would you call it an indie section? Well, we've we've got, got a sort of indie ghetto there, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, which is strange. So we've got Blur and Coffee and TV, we've got Cast, Stereophonic. It's There's an interesting end of something, beginning of something else bit going on here. Yeah, it is the sort of fag end of Britpop. It's mm. the last sort of embers going on there. Going back, I couldn't have pinned the tail on the donkey of Cast Mama. Oh, sorry, Beat Mama, Cast Beat Mama. Mama. Yeah, I that, could not. I, th- that's a song I haven't heard. Well, I have to say that, and the James song. I, mm. I just
1: lots of love for James in the sense that they are still so popular, and their fan, the way they look
0: after their fans, and that you know, it's not for me. One of the things about that James track that was interesting was I, I thought that was coming to the end of James's career. Do you oh, know it's yeah. not? They, they, they've had like eight or nine albums since then. So oh, absolutely. Like, oh my goodness! And and oh, no. I suddenly. Certainly felt quite guilty. <laughs> no, I mean, they're phenomenally, phenomenally popular. Yeah.
1: I mean, the one I the, the one I have a real, I always had a real problem with because everyone else loved it and I didn't, was Gomez.
0: Yeah, and that's that again sits in here. They were the darlings of the press. Well, they won the Mercury Prize, didn't they? I think, yeah, so. they, they won the Mercury in 98. To me, a band like the Beta Band did this so much better. Oh, yeah. for, for the listeners... Darla is holding up a very very nice collection of Beta Band vinyl, um, which which just looked lovely. Even hotshots too, and even the second album.
1: Yeah, I, you see, I absolutely adored the Beaters, and I, yeah. I had written down here before you mentioned that Fisher Price Beta Band Gomez. Yeah. and again, people loved them, and I got it. But for me, at this time, you know, '99 was about the Beaters for me. I, 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 when I first heard them, I couldn't believe it. I yeah. still can't believe it every time I hear them. They're, they were one of those groups that just came along. Again, two-word high concept. Yeah. Fit that bill perfectly. Yeah. I missed the start of Bowie's set at Glastonbury to see the end of the Beta Band set. They were yeah. on stage. The, the, there was just something about it. And, of course, people say, that, you know, they did infiltrate pop in the way that um, Oasis did Go Let It Out, which was their nod to the beta Band in, in yeah. the next year or whatever, but... They were so wonderfully poetic. And Steve Mason, I think, is one of the, the greatest writers. And Gomez just didn't well, do it, but they, they caught the imagination. You know, they were sort of cheeky chappies. They seemed to be very young. They all they just walked in from the Weatherspoons and, and they just caught that moment. Yeah. Didn't catch my moment. Um, no, not really. <laughs> but I, the other one of that group, I mean, Coffee and TV by Blur was just a superb. Tune,
0: I mean, just showed that Blur could do it, they were above it. It was Blur basically bouncing out of Britpop Pop and shaking off the shackles and saying, No, hang on, this there's, there's there's something else here. And you know, it's it's just such a great, great song. You know, you've got Graham on vocals, the, the full album version with that bit at the end yeah it's just lovely it's just fabulous i think that's that's when milky the carton floats off to heaven in that wonderful hammer and tongs video actually hammer and tongs there's a hammer and tongs director thing going on here as well Yeah. Supergrass Supergrass do that yeah. wonderful pumping on the stereo video as well
1: yeah absolutely and and of course stereophonics i always think you know the great thing with stereophonics was they were sort of always there they were sort of there yeah. throughout
0: that period you know i don't think they ever really got the credit they deserved but this was the beginning, I suppose, of, of that big takeoff for the Stereophonics. Permanent features for the next couple of years. And I think, again, after Britpop, there was an honesty in a band like Stereophonics coming back. Do you know, as well, it was, it was a bit like, um, remember when U2 came back with All That You Can Leave Behind? And everybody yeah, yeah, was yeah. praising it because it was, it was back to U2. There was, I think, within that kind of rock type culture, people were wanting that honesty again.
1: Yeah, and I think you know, to me, I always think of Stereophonics as um, like big country. You know, they were that mm. sort of meat and potatoes. I really, I don't like Coldplay, but I hate the haters because yeah. it, it's too easy. And I think Stereophonics fell into that grip as well. He's just got a great voice. Yes, it sounds like Rod Stewart or whatever. They write great songs. I can see why people like them. And I think yeah. that's the great thing with with now is that you can, I can understand why most people like all of this. Uh, I you know I like half of it and I love twenty five percent of it. Yeah. But then in that pop,
0: right about this time, the now people did the the millennium series of the years. You know, they kind of That's did right, the kind yeah. of yeah, and and they were great. But again, that was the beginning of beginning to compartmentalise these years. And let's yeah. be honest, you know, there was there was songs that are on this CD that wouldn't have made it onto the millennium series of ninety nine. Oh, absolutely,
1: and 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 that's the thing. And I think we always think in years, and we always think in genres, and we think in departments and all of that. Because you can have, you know, the cartoons or cartoons, which is one of the worst records ever. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I appreciate irony and trash and all of that. But frankly, yeah. but you can have it on the same album as
0: Supergrass or the the Seriophonics, and and you know, because that's what real life is like. Let's have an honourable mention here for Brian Adams because th- this is interesting. We talk about that earnest rock element of the stereophonics guitar slung over your back and hitting the highway. Now, Brian Adams totally symbolised that, but he doesn't hear. <laughs> Co- this was co-written with Max Martin. I didn't know that. Yeah. He did go very pop in 2000 with a chicane track.
1: This was done, if I remember rightly, as the, the sort of the new track on our greatest hits. I think, Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, you know, you'd had earlier that year uh, the Mel C record. I mean, yeah, that was just a stunning record, you know. And it it showed, I mean, it was the first time I think I ever liked a Brian Adams record. I didn't mind Run To You. I thought that was all right. Mm -hmm. Summer of 69 made me want to gag, and it still does. It's one of those records like American Pie. Again, I think it's too easy to hate on certain records, but that one really does offend me. And then you've got to love the 16 week at number one, one and all of that. And the way he was then recast as this sort of, you know, power balladeer, mm. which actually was only a fraction of what he
0: did. And that, that's why I think this is, you know, it is a very calculated effort to make a pop record. And actually Texas jumped back a bit on that CD. Yeah. It, Texas is, is that kind of similar reinvention as well?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, this was all in the the sort of, afterglow of, um, you know, the Chris Evans record. To yeah. Say what you want, wasn't it? Where before they'd all been sort of banging in their check shirts on some highway somewhere in um, the Midwest. <laughs> now suddenly they were sort of, you know, trip-hop darlings, choppy hairdo. Um, and this was perfect. Again, you know, you think about those Richard Curtis films mm. as being a symbol of this period as well. Yeah. Of that optimism, you know, he'd yet to make The Boat That Rocked. So you, you had, uh, you know, the, uh, what's the, the Weddings one, going yeah. into Nine Hill, which this is from, and then going into um, Love Actually. And it was almost like, you know, you know the 90s, the end of the 90s, that with Blair and all of that, we were trying, with Britpop especially, we were trying to evoke the 60s, you know, the sort of 60s cool. Uh, and records like this were sort of typifying that, that you had Texas making these big, beautiful Bangers, if you like, with yeah. which everyone could sing along to and it's, And it was almost that was still the time, All well, you know, another one to accrue for the Greatest
0: Hits album when it comes, <laughs> which, which was coming very, very quickly by this point. And, and again, great servants to the now albums because, well, why wouldn't you want great three minute pop songs like this? I
1: don't know, absolutely. I mean, they were crafted within an inch of their life. <laughs> yeah. And she was brilliant. You know, you you. there's a lot of talk, as always, about women in pop music. But actually, uh, Charlene, you know, throughout was really, really clearly her own person throughout. Yeah. you know, she was styled when she went into
0: say um, what you want and all of that. But you yeah. know, you know, you you feel like well, no, she's leading that. You go back and you listen to it. No, it actually takes you back to a time, and again, it's that millennial optimism. It's there in all these different genres. Absolutely, and I, and I think
1: you know, in one sense, I mean, obviously, nine eleven was the beginning of the end of all of it. But I think there is something about I I sort of see this almost British decade and a half that ended with the Olympics, which sort of started here with Blair getting in, yeah. And even those early days of of Cameron, because it was a coalition and you know Nick Clegg, it was all like, oh, maybe he is the answer and he's going to carry it. And then you think about the 2012 Olympics, you know, that was almost the full stop to
0: 1999, yeah, uh, and all of that optimism because underworld were the official scorers of the olympics everything had gone full circle we'd kind of started off in 96 97 with underworld's soundtracking train spotting which was the subculture of Of everything that had come through to the point where 2012 as you say they were basically the musical directors for the greatest sporting event this country had ever seen
1: Absolutely. And you had that. And you also had, you know, this thing that that how music had become democratised that, you know, you had Mike Oldfield was was doing Tubular Bells as part of that. And it was like, wow. And obviously it was Danny Boyle, but these people really know what they're doing. And I think it's all that optimism that started that we had at that point that then certainly in the British music. But it seemed to spread worldwide because, you know, she's not on this, but she's on either the one before, I think, you know, Shares Believe. Mm, yeah. You know, what a clarion call for and You had Britney Spears, and then you had sort of Travis, for, for for better or for worse, starting the whole live lounge thing by their version of, you know, One More Time recast as a sort of acoustic yeah. indie song. You know, little did we know 21 years later, you can't move <laughs> adverts with someone not, you know, singing more than a feeling in the style of, uh, you know, Ellie (laughs) Goulding fainting but at that time it didn't matter because it was all new and here's Fatboy Slim and look the Spice Girls are split up but there's we're getting five quality records by all these people it was like you know 1971 and the Beatles
0: with all their separate hits yeah everything that happened in the 90s Brought it to this point Without Baggy Without the dance explosion Without pop, You wouldn't actually have Any of this As we moved into 2000 and beyond It then gave you that chance To actually say Do you know what I am going to pick and take Everything from here as well Yeah
1: you know, I completely really agree and yeah. I think also, you know, technology catching up where it was far easier to sample, it was far easier to do all these things. And also the way that films had really moved back into the lexicon in a way they had with with Tarantino, you know, Out of Sight was coming with, um, you know, was that Steven Soderbergh with, yeah. with mm-hmm. Lopez and George Clooney. David Holmes, I think, is the sort of almost invisible hand on the tiller of all of this, because throwing all those things on those soundtracks and, you know, Radio 1's Essential Mix you know, all of this was happening at the same time and it was mashing out Mogwai, were, you know, yeah. disparate things were all creating this piece where music became really, really exciting again. And I know, and I'm as much as the next person to eulogise about how wonderful 1981 was and how key Dexies and Spandau Ballet's channel Number no. 1 and all that was to my life. But here was the point that I think gave, he used the phrase permission. He gave permission for music to sort of move forward and for people to sort of, Experiment with where they wanted to be, and obviously some of that ended up in you know ridiculously shite dead ends. But some of it really, really worked well, and I love it. And you, you know, you go out of a night when you do half of this, you still here on a
0: dance floor, and that's the testimony, isn't it? Daryl, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast and going back to the summer of 1999, and now 43 it's been an absolute pleasure thank you Ian I have had a whale of a time I'm now going back to revisit some of those tracks we didn't talk about <laughs> what, we didn't even talk about ATB oh good <laughs> next time well, Lolly Cartoons Precious oh, oh. there's a lot honeys. more to discuss and it's honeys oh but there we God. are but let's ask our listeners to go back and find all these tracks and maybe they can let us know on social media exactly what they think about them marvellous <laughs>